Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Ian Mayer. Ian is the Executive Director of Gideon's UK, an association of Christian business and professional men and women dedicated to sharing the gospel by providing Bibles and New Testaments to schools, hotels, hospitals, universities universities, colleges and prisons. Ian, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Thank you. It's a real pleasure having you, Ian. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to ascertain your take on leadership as a whole, of course. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader in isolation first and foremost, what does that word actually mean to you? <laughs> it's it's a very interesting question, Scott, and, and the, the whole subject of leadership is a, a massive subject. For me, uh, as a Christian, uh, leadership uh, speaks to me of uh, real humility. Mm. And as a Christian, being dependent on God to lead me in the role that I do. It's, it's also about having an understanding of, of the conditions around in which you are called to lead and uh, being aware, obviously, of the objectives that are set before you. But I think overall, it's, it's, it's that real sense of purpose, understanding what you've been called to do and, and leading with compassion and care uh, those that you have been called to, to lead. I mean, it's a subject that we could talk about for a long time. But for mm. me, uh, that, the, the, the key aspects of, of leadership uh, for, for, for myself, understanding uh, the, the, the day in which you live, the objective that's set before you and all that's needed to achieve that objective and, and taking the people that you lead along with you as you uh, go forward. I also remember an expression that I've used uh, many times over the years, and, and that is that when the best leader's job is done, uh, the people say they did it themselves. So I think really true leadership is you go out of sight and uh, those that you lead are encouraged in, in the role that they are uh, undertaking. I think there's some very important things to take away from that. Um, that last point that you mentioned there, Ian, about giving people the confidence to take on leadership for themselves and empower them, that's incredibly important because ultimately people going out of their own comfort zones and really pushing the boundaries and learning for themselves, that's a key element of development, isn't it, first and foremost? Mm. Yeah, yeah, very very much so. And, you know, in the role I do, there's really two aspects to that leadership. There's the staff. Uh, that uh, I have responsibility for, but also as an organisation, we have got uh, almost 5,000 volunteers. So uh, leadership uh, in a voluntary capacity is, is very much different from mm. uh, leadership in an employed capacity, but, but you need that skill and understanding uh, to uh, take everyone along together and, and really understand uh, the, the strengths of the people you lead and how you can encourage and develop those but also areas where people need uh, development and uh, uh, the, the support that they need uh, in, in order to take them forward. I think it's really important, I think, in leadership that, that not to be overbearing, but to, to, to get alongside people and, and, and to take them along uh, with you so that you go forward together in the achievement of uh, the objectives. 
It's getting onto an equal footing with people, isn't it? And demonstrating that humility that you mentioned there is an incredibly important part of that. Um, If we think about sort of your own leadership style for a moment, I mean, in the context of your colleagues, especially at Gideon's, how would you go about describing that, that sort of people management side of what you do? Well, I I think over the years, uh, my leadership style has changed. Uh, I I don't mind saying I'm I'm in my mid-50s now. And I, I think... Uh, as I got older, my leadership style has is, 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 is changed in relation to, uh, I think, being more sensitive to the, to, to the needs of uh, the individuals that I lead. I think when I was perhaps younger, it was more focused on just the objective and uh, just driving forward to that objective and, and, and perhaps without so much care uh, for, for, for those that uh, I was called to lead. I think now, uh, as I get older, I, I really feel, and maybe it's how I've developed as a Christian, is uh, showing much more care and compassion and taking time uh, over uh, the responsibilities of, of, of leadership. And of course, during your own um, missions, Ian, I suppose, um, I'm sure that you've met some incredibly inspiring and influential people um, as well. Um, are there any examples of individuals that really stick out that have maybe had an impact on you in terms of inspiring you and maybe had an influence on you and that style of leadership that you have taken on? Yes, I I, I, I would say there are, there, 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 there are probably... Uh, too many to mention, but I, mm. I, I can go back over over the years and uh, think of many individuals, both uh, in my uh, occupations, my employments, and and also in in the church, uh, in that uh, environment where I grew up, that that showed leadership in, in 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 different ways. And I think the those that have inspired me most are those that have had a real care inside to their leadership that have have really shown great compassion for the people that they led and uh, really took time with them and uh, care for them to ensure that uh, they were receiving the encouragement and, and support that they needed. So those those are the type of leaders that I, I think I have learned most from uh, are those that have, have achieved tremendous results through showing real care and compassion for the people that they led and getting a positive response for those people as opposed to those who would uh, drive people forward. And they might achieve the same result, but Mm. not perhaps in the way that I would want to achieve results. I think it shows, doesn't it, that some of the most influential leaders out there can be some of those who are closest to us, can't they? People who are in our local community, people who are parents, teachers, mentors, friends, family, colleagues. Um, And I think recognition for these sorts of people who quietly go about their business in that way can fall by the wayside a bit in comparison to those associated with the public eye, such as politicians, such as celebrities, sports personalities, for example. I think there's a temptation to link leadership with the latter more than the former isn't there i think you're, you're absolutely right i mean i i come from the far north of scotland and i i can think of say, both my grandfathers who were uh, you know very humble men they, they, they were fishermen uh, they, they really traveled beyond the villages in which they were born and brought up they, they they spent their lives at sea providing for their families but i i learned so much from them in, 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 in relation to leadership, they, they, they did not particularly lead many people, but they commanded great respect from those who knew them because of how they lived their lives, 
and 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 how they demonstrated their Christian faith uh, in, in in the way that they conducted themselves. So they they have had as much uh, influence on on me uh, as on any number of books and leadership that I I have read over the years. And of course, when it comes to learning, we're going through at the moment a very difficult and a very tragic time with the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, but it is equally proving to be one of the greatest learning curves for businesses, governments and organisations the world over as well. Um, how has this last few weeks and months impacted yourselves at Gideon's UK? And I'd be interested to maybe find out a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's impacted us on on. on different ways and you know I'm sure this is the same for, for, for every uh, business and organization there's mm. been the negatives and, and the positives I mean as an organization we are very much involved in distributing uh, Bibles and testaments into schools hotels hospitals and so on now that that work has uh, very much uh, stopped over uh, the, the, the times of, of lockdown, especially schools, because understandably, not mm. only have schools been closed, but, but even when they're opening, they're not ready to accept visitors. However, alongside that, uh, we uh, have recently been developing uh, the presentation of scriptures in a, a magazine format, the Gospel of John, a very colourful format, which is very attractive and easy to read. Uh, we produced 60,000 of these at the beginning of lockdown, Every single one has, has gone out, uh, and we've now uh, just uh, set in place a print run for another 200,000, and we've got many thousands of orders uh, waiting to be fulfilled. So it's shown us, if you like, new ways of doing our business. But I think also alongside that, uh, simple things like the use of, of Zoom uh, and other platforms for holding meetings, many meetings I've had over the past 10, 12 weeks or so, I would normally have travelled to these meetings. I would have used trains, I would have driven, I would have flown uh, to several other countries. I have held all of these meetings in Zoom, and I don't think they've been any less effective. So I I, I, I believe we are learning, and in all honesty, I, I hope the whole country is learning mm. uh, how we can be more effective uh, in relation to the environment and finances and so on that we can conduct business in a different way, but a more economical and just as an effective way. So I think there's lots of lessons to be learned. And uh, when I hear people talk about, well, things going back to normal, I think we've got to question what, what, what is normal? What do we want to go back to? And do we really want to go back to exactly how it was before lockdown? Mm. The words, the new normal, are really flying around an awful lot lately aren't there and um, I think um, given the renewed focus on mental health well-being sustainability as well new ways of working some of these new working procedures that you've been involved in of course conducting meetings remotely of course going down the magazine route with getting the scriptures out there that's something that could certainly persist even into the future couldn't it yeah no no question I think we as as an organization will will uh, be, be looking to develop these uh, new ways of, uh, if you like, doing work, doing business going forward. We will be holding uh, many more meetings uh, online. Uh, there will be much less travel. Uh, we'll, we'll save uh, finances in that regard. And uh, we'll look at how we can do business just as effectively, but, but more uh, cost uh, effective. And, and, you know, that's my uh, hope and prayer 
here for the whole country, I suppose the whole world, that we, mm. can, we can learn from these things going forward. And thinking about what the next year or so will hold for yourself and for Gideon's UK in particular, Ian, um, what do you envision for that period as we move into the new normal and what do you really hope to achieve in that time? Well, we've uh, recently uh, uh, elected a new uh, president for the association. That's the chair of the board of trustees. He is, is a man that's come in with tremendous experience uh, in uh, the work that we do. Uh, he is a retired surgeon, and uh, we are working together to put a new uh, strategic plan in place for the association going forward. So we're looking, as you say, under the new normal, we're looking at different ways uh, to, to do uh, the work of the charity. We're looking at different ways that we can uh, uh, send out scriptures, that we can distribute scriptures, that we can engage people with the scriptures, and also that we can uh, encourage others to come and join us in the work that we do. So we've a whole range of initiatives. So I think over the next year, it will be a time of, of putting new plans in place uh, in, in order to develop our, our work going forward. So it's a very exciting time. And uh, going back to leadership, our, our hope and prayer is that we, we take uh, the whole uh, of our, our membership forward uh, with us. We're also changing the name of the organization. We've been known as Gideon's UK. Uh, at the minute, we have an interim name, which is good news for everyone. Uh, that's the name of the charity right now. And uh, we're looking at a new uh, permanent name, which is something that we'll be uh, looking to put in place over the next year, a name that, that really describes what we do going forward. So it's an exciting time for us. And uh, as Christians, we, we pray about it and we, we just look to God to, to lead us going forward. And it certainly seems like um, there are exciting times ahead, Ian, uh, for sure. And uh, given how informative it's been actually having you on the uh, the programme with us today to discuss this, I think it would be fantastic to catch up and have you back on the uh, the programme just to see how those new initiatives are getting on, how those hopes are being borne out, and also hopefully have some more good news to share. That would be absolutely tremendous. I, I, I really uh, feel very privileged and, and very humbled to be asked to share in, in this way. So thank you very uh, very much, Scott. It's uh, it's very kind of you to uh, invite me to have this opportunity to share just a very little bit uh, of the work uh, that we have going forward. It's a pleasure for both uh, myself and um, I'm sure the uh, the listeners as well, Ian, uh, certainly. Um, it's a shame we are just about out of time today, otherwise we could discuss it long into the afternoon, I'm sure. But uh, in the meantime, until we do touch base um, again in the future, I'm certain, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with the COVID-19 situation yet. And it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you. That was Ian Mayer speaking, the Executive Director of Gideon's UK. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. 
Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.